nothing's off limits. I think the more authentic podcasts are, the the more uh, relevant they are and, and the more listenable they are. I agree. And, you know, I like, love talking about productivity and stuff like that, but it's the human beingness of who we are that really comes through on podcasts. And most enjoyable ones I've heard are people being not not explicitly self-relevatory, but, you know, they're authentic about it and, and unapologetic. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, being able to look at our mistakes and talk about them honestly is what this world needs right now. Yeah. So I'm bringing plenty of mistakes to our conversation tonight. <laughs> Same here, Bill. Welcome, which is welcome in Afrikaans, which is a language that's West Germanic. It descended from Dutch and it's spoken mainly in South Africa and Namibia. So welcome to the Daddy Unscripted podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the creator and the host of the podcast. And yes, I welcome you every time in a different language. And Afrikaans may sound, well, welcome may sound the same, but it it, it isn't. And when I say goodbye to you at the end of the podcast, it definitely sounds different. So if you think I'm kind of taking it easy on you, just wait till the end. You'll learn something new. So everybody, thank you so much for coming back to the Daddy Unscripted podcast for this episode. For those of you who are new to the podcast, I'm excited that you are here. Hopefully you will stick around and check out some other episodes for you returning loyal listeners I heart you, I heart hands you, I appreciate you truly and sincerely. I am thankful for every one of you that are listening to this episode and listening to my podcast. I thank you from the bottom of my heart, not to be confused with the heart of my bottom. I do not thank you from that. And today I have a great episode for you. I I will tell you, sometimes I record these intros before I do the podcast. It's kind of rare that I do that. But in most cases, it happens right afterwards. So right now, I am in the glowing, the afterglow, you might say, of my conversation with today's guest, with Bill Protzman, because this was just another such a great conversation, such a brilliant man who has done so many fantastic things, continues to do so many fantastic things. And it really is like a sheer happenstance that I stumbled upon Bill. I I really think it was maybe on LinkedIn. I, I really, truly believe it was on LinkedIn. And I'm not quite sure I have the words for it to describe how grateful, truly 100% grateful I am that that happened, that not only I happened to find him and find what he had in his bio. So this is something for those of you on LinkedIn, make sure your bios are good. But what I saw made me want to look a little bit deeper, made me want to reach out to him. And then the multitude of gratefulness that I have, that he responded in kind that he was interested in doing the podcast and that we were able to take this time out of his evening and make this happen. Like I, I don't know how many of you are getting the same feels that I'm getting from some of these episodes, but I am really 
really blessed, humbled, fortunate, uh, sometimes feeling unworthy of these conversations with these men that I would never have had if not for this podcast. And I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm not patting myself on the back or anything like that. But I am, is this weird to say? It feels weird to say, but I am so grateful for this podcast because of these people that I am getting to talk with. And I really hope that that is extenuating out to a lot of you as well. I know some of you are reaching out to me via Twitter or through email and giving me these little words as well, which you can also do on iTunes or wherever you are listening to your podcast and do a rating and a review. Just that's the only time I'm going to say it. I'm not going to say it after the episode, but I love these little notes that some of you are giving me because it does give me that drive and that reminder of this is important. This is something that some of you are getting these as I say in this episode more than once, these fantastic insidey feels. I think that's what I said. Something like that. You'll see. You'll hear in this episode. So I'm supposed to do this earlier than this. I'm sorry I did not. Don't be mad at me, Osiris Podcast Network that I'm a part of, that I love, that I even mention in this podcast with Bill. But let's get that tiny little less than a minute business out of the way and have somebody tell you a little bit more about their podcast on the Osiris Podcast Network. Osiris. Hey everybody, I'm Brian Saxon. And I'm Michael Shields, and we are the hosts of Welcome to the Party Pal, the mind-bending film and television podcast you didn't know you needed. Welcome to the Party Pal is a celebration of the art of cinema and filmmaking, where movies and television shows are deconstructed and analyzed to evaluate their grandeur. Guests will include the filmmakers and industry insiders that craft the works of art that we celebrate here when you join the party. Welcome to the Party Pal is part of the Osiris Podcast Network. Okay, so gonna get into this episode. I swear it's coming right around the corner. And I was thinking last week, I think it was, that I don't really spend a lot of time on my intro. And sometimes I don't spend a lot of time on my outro. And a lot of times I shut down. I'm driving home from where I'm recording and I'm thinking in my mind, wow, I. I Maybe I should have said more about that guy or about our conversation instead of just like constantly saying a tiny little bit, doing a spiel and saying, let's get right to the episode. But because I want to get right to this episode. And so a lot of that does go into the website post. So make sure that you guys check out daddyunscripted.com with each episode. I have, at the very least, the show notes are in there that most of you are probably not reading on your phone. But with a lot of these, I do add some photos that the guests are providing to me. And I give a lot more information and discussion and some more uh, depth to not only our conversation, but to the guests themselves. So make sure that you check out daddyunscripted.com for that. So I won't talk anymore about this, but I hope you guys listen to this entire episode. There is some amazing, remarkable, beautiful things in this episode with Bill 
and we get into some conversation and some things that I haven't yet talked about on this podcast, oddly, I don't think. I, I, I said that I didn't, and I really don't think I have, but I definitely... If I have, it's been a very slight mention, and we went more into it on this. So we got into some heavy places that all came out with some miraculous and shiny endings that are still works in progress, are still the fact that we still are humans that feel things both in the good and in the bad, and that we are not afraid of those emotions. And we talked a lot about that. So I hope that you all get into this whole episode and hear just the great things that Bill does. And uh, let's just get to the episode because I could just do this for quite a while. So without any further intro adieu, here is my conversation with Bill Protzman. All right. Today we are joined by Bill Protzman. I feel fairly strong about my last name enunciation. I think all of my watching of sports actually has helped that because it's like hockey have stretched me to infinite bounds with all of the foreign names. So I feel like I did okay with your last name, did I? Yeah, you nailed it. That's the Americanized version of whatever the German pronunciation is. <laughs> <laughs> Which would probably just be said much more aggressively. Yes, in your face, <laughs> up close. Yeah. Maybe screamed. Yeah, yeah. So welcome, Bill. I'm, I'm really happy to have you on the podcast today. Glad to be here, Tim. It's a thrill to do this. And we were talking just before, it's, it's so great to be a part of the uh, historical record, you know, of everything that podcasters are putting down right now. Mm-hmm. It is really something how many and i mean now it's just it's almost at ridiculous level where there's a podcast for basically everything but that humongous documentation of so many different stories so many different people and things that to some may seem completely like just a waste of time but there are so many nuggets out there from all corners of the world and all corners of interest that, uh, you know, I probably haven't even looked, but there's probably like logging podcasts. Oh, and yeah, it must be. <laughs> other things that you could, you know, it's kind of like the new YouTube, I guess, in a way, just audio. But uh, anyway, this podcast is definitely going to gain significant value from you and all of the experiences that you have under your belt, as well as I, I really am very fascinated by the work that you do involving music and especially with the Osiris. I didn't think I even mentioned that to you, but with the Osiris podcast network that this podcast is a part of, which is based around music and culture podcasts. When I saw the work that you do, I was like, oh my God, this is just going to be fantastic for all of that audience to be able to hear. So I am excited to get to that part as well. Happy to be here. So I usually kind of end up dancing around it so much, but let's go directly back into whatever it means for you if you are going back in your paternal line to kind of get into the roots and history of who you are. Sure. I'll, I'll mention just a couple things that are important that kind of helped 
my journey. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, I've been playing the piano since I was three. Mom was a teacher, and I was student number one. So that was a really great thing for me because um, I was a difficult child. I'm told I was pretty um, hard-headed and demanding in many ways. Um, stubborn would be a good word. But the <laughs> piano um, helped me uh, learn in ways that I think I wouldn't have learned without it. So playing music mm-hmm. engages you in everything, right? So your your eyes are reading the music and watching what your hands are doing at the piano and your fingers are moving and your brain has to tell them how to move. And you're hearing the results of that movement and you can feel the keys and not to digress too much, but there's a real difference between feeling a vibration in your fingers when you play a full-size grand piano and not feeling anything when you play a keyboard. It's very difficult for me to play my keyboard because there's no immediate tactile vibration coming back on my fingers. Yeah, And that's how, as percussionists, we piano players modulate the sound and produce a sound that sings rather than just grates on you. So all of that stuff is engaged when you're making music. And as a young kid, I was making a lot of it. And, and that helped me developmentally in ways that I don't think anything else could have helped. Am I still stubborn and hard-headed? And yeah, I am. <laughs> but I, I think I got a leg up by integrating a lot more of my left and right brain, if you will, from an old-fashioned back in the day. We used to call it that paradigm. But integrating all of that really helped uh, helped me do well in school and learn to pay attention and, and different things like that. Protzmans are a proud bunch, and um, so are my mom's family on her side. There were, of course, immigrants in both families, and my family goes back on both my mother's and father's side to the daughters of the American Revolution. So we've been around a while. And that raises another interesting fact that a lot of men in both sides of my family um, have been in some manner involved in the military. Um, Even my son right now, who's a Marine Corps Reserve officer, is serving. I didn't get a chance to do that. I wanted to fly, but I couldn't see well enough. So I wound up doing something different in college. But in the last 10, 15 years or so, I've been giving back. I didn't learn to volunteer until late in the 2000s. And the idea of volunteering for service is something that uh, is part of the military culture in my family. So being a part of that, now I serve veterans with what I do, which we'll get to in a bit. But it feels good to be engaged in that way and to have found the benefits, the blessing from volunteering. is There's nothing else that feels like being part of service that Mm -hmm. is altruistic, completely altruistic. There's something you can't gain in life unless you do that. And, and I've been blessed by that. I think that's a, something I have to thank my family for, particularly the men in my family, some of whom gained their lives, and fortunately some of whom are still with us after having served in places like Vietnam. It's, it's, um, hmm. it's just the ethos that exists in the family that, that's gotten me there. Now, having said that, there's one other aspect of my family that I want to include in our conversation. Um, I have for a long time been bothered by... Uh, what the behavioral health people call suicidal ideation. And when I was a kid growing up, I was just very depressed. I didn't realize what was going on. And um, we'll tie this back into music too, a little later down the road here. But it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I learned that my dad's father had killed himself. Hmm. And that got me curious about whether there's some kind of a, not genetic, but sort of a passed down uh, trait that might be mm-hmm. related to the way that I feel about suicide today. I lost a really good friend uh, to suicide when we were both in our 40s, early 40s. And um, 
that got me curious as well about what I was feeling. And I've done a lot of work and research into that. And uh, clearly, I'm, I'm glad I did now because, as you know, the number of veteran suicides is way up. Military suicides are way up. Even guys my age are offing themselves at a rate that is skewing the entire demographic. Mm-hmm. And then we have the opioid crisis and all of the medically induced behavioral issues that can result in suicide. It's, it's really not a great thing. But it's a topic for our time, and we need to be able to do something with it. It's, it's also part of my family. You know, my part of my family history. Maybe it's part of more family histories than we really know. You know, Tim, I, I don't know how to answer that. It's not something people talked about yeah. until very recently. So it's good we're talking about these things because it makes them less terrifying, less of a stigma. I got to be there when post-traumatic stress was destigmatized, and now we talk about it as post-traumatic growth. And we're able to say with confidence that every one of us goes through trauma in our lives, and it helps us to change and to grow and to become more self-actualized than without the trauma. And of course, all the therapists are very happy about that because it's enriched them, but we don't have enough therapists for all the people who have to deal with their trauma. And in my family, and certainly I believe in the case of my grandfather, a lot of those traumatic things were simply stuffed down inside and ultimately they, they became too much and took over and ended lives. And it doesn't have to be that way. I think we're getting to a place now where society understands that the trauma is a, or can be a positive thing. It feels terrible in the middle of it, but it can be a positive thing if you use it to help you grow. So I'm, I'm grateful for the sacrifices that everyone in my family has made to bring us to where we are today and for the future sacrifices that I know all of us are going to have to make because that's what helps humanity uh, evolve. And you know, sad but true. So I've learned to embrace some things that I early in life uh, resisted. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to be a depressed teenager. Yeah. But I've learned as an adult that depression actually has a lot of benefits, a lot of blessings, if you're able to ride it out successfully and stay with the hope that it does hold something good for you and not just this endless blackness that many of us get into. And I've been there too. Yeah. It's funny because that makes me think about even the uh, stigma might be too big of a word, but the telling of a to a child or a teenager even an adult that anger is bad that sadness is bad that these things are things you shouldn't feel and that idea that really creates that cycle for somebody that um you very easily get caught into because then you are sad or mad that you're sad or mad and that, that's so apt. <laughs> and how how important those emotions are to uh, to all of us and that it is okay. It's what you do with those that is the matter at hand, but it is absolutely 100% human. You know, that's the baseline of it, that these are all human emotions for us to have, but they are absolutely okay for you to go through and that some of them have a course that you have to write out as well. So I, I came by that knowledge the hard way because like many people, I was raised not to be too angry, not to be too scared, not to be too sad, you know, like, don't be afraid, Billy. I can just hear mm-hmm. them saying, you know, but there is, there's richness in all of those emotions that, as you pointed out, and at the piano was where I found that richness. 
So while I couldn't be angry like in real life, I could be angry at the piano and the music of Beethoven and Brahms and others just really lets you resonate with those feelings that aren't socially acceptable, or perhaps they are, but not in our family, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I fortunately, I had the, the piano and the music there to be able to give some voice to the emotions that I wasn't able to express effectively in other ways. And um, I, I look at that now as a sort of self-care, uh, behavioral health care, certainly. And my mother, who taught little kids all the way through to the end of her life, which was 2001. She was still teaching a few weeks before she passed away. Mm. She taught kids with that in mind, with, that is with the, with the notion that a child who learns how to do, even if it's 30 seconds of music at the piano, of real music, has 30 seconds of experience that will help them for the rest of their life. And learning to perform an entire piece of music, even if it's only a couple of minutes long, is an experience that helps a child focus in on doing something that is completely holistic. And that experience will stay with you, whether or not you become a concert piano player or anything down the road, you've learned how to do that, like that process. You could see this every time mom was teaching, you'd see three to five-year-old kids and 10 to 11-year-old kids doing the same kind of, uh, bringing the same kind of focus and attention to this crazy thing of making music at a hundred pounds, hundreds of pounds of, of wood and wire and steel in, in a box that shouldn't sound like anything at all and making music with it, mm-hmm. you know? And what a satisfying thing for the kids to, to receive a, a, a praise and acknowledgement for this crazy ability that they've mastered, you know? It mm-hmm. seems so weird to think of it that way, but there it is. And it's such an amazing thing to watch a rambunctious five-year-old sit at a piano for a minute and a half and actually make music there. And then just go back to being the crazy kid that he is right? Mm-hmm. But I live that. And I've watched so many other kids that mom taught live that same experience that I know that there's value in this. And it's, it's an incredible uh, parenting tool, if you will, just to, to slide into that for a second. When you took a lesson at, at mom's studio, you and your parent were there because until next week, the parent's the only one that mom's got to help reinforce what the kids learn. Right. So she taught parents and kids to play the same thing at the same piano at the same time. Hmm. And um, was amazingly successful at that. It was teaching parenting skills as well as teaching musical skills. Mm-hmm. Double whammy. But that was mom. That's cool. It is. So, okay. So going back, sorry, we kind of. Yes, we digress. <laughs> Which is okay. It's going to happen. That's why it's daddy unscripted. Exactly. And there's editing <laughs> tools for later on. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so going back to your, you were talking about your dad's dad and now um, going kind of to your dad and making those connections. Yeah. Dad, of course, the, not the musician in the family, but always there, always supportive. The one and only time that I've ever seen my father cry happened pretty late in my life, pretty late in his, actually. It was while before mom had passed away, and I was giving a concert, and they were there. And I believe my daughter was there, too. It might have been my daughter's birthday. But I had this little medley of love songs from musicals that I played, and they'd been songs that I'd grown up with, so they were part of me. They say that the music we love as adolescents is the music that's sort of our music and stays with us the rest of our life. And uh, I played a particular song. It's actually been recorded by the Beatles, too. Till There Was You from the musical The Music Man. Hmm. And I knew this was an important song because I'd heard it around the house for a lot of time, right? Well, I, I, I think I ended with that song 
I don't remember exactly how the medley went. After I finished playing, I stood up and looked over at the audience, my parents in the front row, and I saw my dad wiping tears away from his eyes. Mm. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I got to be there at least once when dad found these emotions. Mm -hmm. And in our family, um, it's rare for any of the men to express emotion, both sides of the family, just how the family is. It's not right or wrong, it's just that's who we are. So mm-hmm. this was one of the greatest gifts that my father ever shared in my presence. And I don't think he did it for me. I think he did it because it was their love song, right? They'd, yeah. they'd love that song together. And I don't know at that moment, I've wondered whether dad knew that mom was within a year of passing away. But I don't have any reason to believe that he would have guessed that or known it. She was fine at that time. Mm-hmm. But it was a moment that their their private connection became public for me. and. It was such a beautiful thing to be there for that, Tim. There's so many moments that have happened like that um, in concerts or just playing the piano wherever people are around. 
but to get to see that one with my own father was a real gift. Yeah, I'm sure. I don't know if that's an influence thing or if that's a sort of memory kind of thing, looking back on it fondly. But those are the times you remember when someone comes up to you and they're trying to express something that's on their mind after they've heard a song and they can't quite say it, but you can see their eyes are a certain way. Maybe they're crying, maybe not, but they just, there's something inside that wants to get out. Mm -hmm. And often it just comes out as thank you, but it's so much more than that. You can just, you just tell, you can tell that's happened to me. I've had moments where after playing, I remember during recital once at intermission, I, got up and walked into the green room and sat down and just began to weep. The music had had that kind of an effect on me and I didn't realize that I was just making it happen, Mm -hmm. but it all came home, you know, when I was away from the instrument and, and sitting down and sort of catching my breath, I was just overcome with what had happened. Hmm. I don't remember if it was any good or whatever, but it certainly hit me in a way that left a mark, like a, like left an emotional mark in a good way on me. Those are the ones you remember. So your your dad was not a musician, but he obviously he loved music. Sounds like it would have been difficult for him to even avoid not being a big fan of music. Oh yeah, me, my mom, my sister, we were all playing. I started practicing at six in the morning to catch the bus at seven. So <laughs> <laughs> he was at, le- at least tolerant, but I really believe also appreciative. He, he mm-hmm. really loved the music around the house, even though he could one finger it, you know, and poke out melodies at the piano. He he knew where his talents were, and he respected where ours were, and we all got along. So what what year were your parents born, or years? Um, dad, mid-30s, mom, um, around the same time. So they were okay. they were not old enough to be like World War II. Their parents would have been in World War II, mm-hmm. you know, or connected to it. And um, so dad passed away in 2017, and mom in 2001. Hmm. And, um, they, they, they saw a lot, they saw a lot. And so they both would have been kind of kids of the fifties. Yeah. Yeah. They would have come of age in the fifties, met and married in 58. So, or met in about 56, married in 58. And were they out here in California or? Well, they kind of bumped around, but by the time I was born in 61, they were living in Long Beach. Mm-hmm. Most of my dad's family is still in the Midwest, in uh, St. Louis or Texas, that part of the world. And mom's family's been in California a long, long time. So um, mm-hmm. I grew up in the L.A. area and then in Northern California and Palo Alto before it was a big deal. And then moved south in the late 70s. And I've been in Southern California for most of the rest of the time, except for a quick stint in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, which was interesting. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a little out of the ordinary of everything else. Oh, it's the way life works. Yeah. The company I worked for had an office in the Empire State Building, so it was fun to go up there and oh wow, you know, be a part of that whole thing. New York was getting cleaned up back in the um, sort of mid to late 80s and um, that was a that was a good time to be there. So, then as a kid, you are up in the LA kind of area and you said that you is it just you and your sister? Yes, my sister and I are the only two kids in the family. Okay. And is she, are you older or younger than her? Oh, good question. Yeah, I'm about five years older than my sister, who still teaches piano. Uh, She's living out in Colorado right now. And, you know, all of our kids, so I have um, a son and a daughter, uh, three stepdaughters. Every one of them is involved in music somehow or another. Um, Even my Mm -hmm. nieces and nephew are uh, connected to music. 
my nephew had a rock band, a garage band for a long, long time. And now he's a big wig at one of the giant hotel companies. I think he's living in New Orleans now, which is, I'm so jealous because anybody who could live in New Orleans, like you have music 24 seven down there. Yeah, seriously. It's a great spot for music. Yeah. So you guys are growing up around this area, your dad. So what is he, what was he doing for work at that time? So dad was a chemical engineer and I believe he's worked for, remember the company that back in the day, is it live or is it Memorex? Oh yeah. He worked for Memorex. Oh wow. And got involved in the creation of the oxide that goes on tape to make recording possible. So awesome. That, that early audio tape was part of dad's team. Wow. Yeah. And um, that's when we were up in Northern California. I was in a Dixieland band around that time, playing piano with four other guys, drummer, trombone, trumpet, tuba, uh, clarinet player. Yeah, and doing uh, high school pit orchestras, playing sax in a couple of marching bands. Yeah, I had the time of my life. I even got to play a piano concerto with the Palo Alto Youth Symphony that traveled to Hawaii. It was a big deal. Mm. Great experience. I'm Music can really open doors, and anybody who's like been around it a little bit might have an idea on that. But as a kid, wow, talk about extracurricular activities. You're always in demand if you can play the piano. Yeah. There's no lack of uh, opportunity. Yeah, and that's a good instrument to go into pretty much any, any genre. Yes. It's challenging for that reason, you know? You can't just be like a jazz guitarist. You have to be able to play anything like a studio musician right mm -hmm. that's a challenge that's really hard and i don't read that well i mean i read music but people who can sit down and sight read some crazy modern classical piano music just blow me away mm -hmm. so much talent out there and the internet has brought that talent like home to us so we can actually see all these people doing things crazy stuff it's it's awesome yeah in my youth i worked at tower records and Nice. At our store, we had a fairly large classical room. It was the Tower Records store in El Toro. And I know um, that store. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. I was living in Laguna Niguel back then. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I was there from 90 till uh, 95, 96. And there was a guy, Charlie, who had long, straight, blonde hair. Look, uh, he was a big deadhead and just looked like a total hippie, but he knew everything about classical music. I mean, everything. Yeah. And people would come from all around to walk and talk with him and have him direct them to stuff that they had never heard of. And I mean, literally people were coming from out of state to come and shop at our store in our classical room. and. I wished I would have not been working there when I was 18 through 23 and, you know, just kind of at the end of my tenure there was when I really started to uh, find any interest whatsoever in classical music myself because I didn't spend enough time uh, picking Charlie's brain and learning more stuff, but I I at least got a little bit of time and got some stuff that I probably never would have dreamed of coming across otherwise. But that's that's so dope because you know most twenty three year olds aren't thinking about classical music at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty obvious from that room 
what kind of people were <laughs> listening to classical music. Somebody needs to come along and do for classical music what um, the Da Vinci Code has done for art history, for example, you know, mm-hmm. or all of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the, those crazy movies have done for art history because there's that yeah. kind of richness exists in classical music, but we haven't quite unpacked it yet. No, they did make that movie. Uh, was it called Finding Beethoven? Um, that was with Gary Oldman. Oh my gosh. It, it's called Immortal Beloved. Yeah, there you oh. go. Immortal Beloved. Yeah. And I think I saw that in the theater probably five to seven times. Oh. And I mean, it was just such a great, I knew I would never want to miss that chance again while it was out because it was so good on the big screen oh, yeah. and with the big sound. Yeah. yeah, that was a great movie. But obviously, you know, didn't really drag in the teenagers or anything. No, like but that. it's it's so relevant. There's a scene from that movie where Gary Oldman, of course, playing Beethoven, is sitting at a grand piano, can't hear, and he's he's mm-hmm. laying the side of his face on the top of the piano as he plays to try to get any vibration into his head at all. Yeah, and I mean that's we have completely deaf percussionists that can perform with symphonies and any other way, and the vibrations themselves are the thing that is the music. You get down to it at a very core level. And if you can feel like I was talking about feeling it in my fingertips, that's the music. Mm-hmm. That's where it really happens. The sound reaches out and touches you on your, on your eardrums. I mean, that's a huge responsibility. I'm going to make music or make sound. Wow. i be careful because I'm touching a very tender part of the people who are listening. And yeah. um, oh, that scene from Immortal Beloved just blows me away. Beethoven said something that yeah. my mother put on a plaque and gave to me at my senior recital with a card. I still have the card and the plaque um, from mm. friends who'd known me since I was very small. And um, in fact, it's on the wall over here. Let me go read it because I want to get it right. Um, this is a quote attributed to Beethoven. From the heart, may it go to the heart. Mm. <laughs> Which is dead on about music in so many ways. And like you were just saying, like you have to be sensitive to what you are doing because you are, I mean, you didn't say it in these exact, I'm already getting your quote wrong, but uh, you got it. it's so very true. Like where you are, I, not for all, but this is your hope. Of course, if you are playing to a room full of people and you are hoping that they are all getting, hit in their insidey places yeah. to put it in a very, in a very medical yes. way. It's I think that's scientific. how I would describe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but like the emotions and the memories that you are potentially striking up in people that you have no idea, obviously that you are touching on and God, I, the power of a musician is remarkable. So going back, because I know um, you kind of touched on some stuff previously. When you are, we'll go through your time of schooling and all of that, because I, I definitely want to be able to really try to jump into the where you got to what you're doing with music and all of that and what you are doing with it. And as well as, some of those dark places and uh, navigating your way through them successfully, which I say in quotation marks, because I guess 
you know, some of them may have been very bumpy roads and all of that, but obviously at the baseline of it all, you are here talking to me today. So yes. that is success. Yes, I'm still breathing <laughs> and I choose to keep, choose to keep doing that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I think maybe potentially that can segue well into you doing this for sure, other people sure. as well. So connect the dots. You know, when you're a teenager, you don't make sense of anything. I knew as a teenager, I was having a great deal of fun playing the piano, and that was awesome. But I also knew as a teenager that I had this sort of depressing depressing aspect to me, and I couldn't reconcile the two. But I realized that the piano um, helped connect me to the expression of that depression in a really great way. I love the r- classical romantic composers, and I'm a great advocate of ballads and melody and things like that, and um, I perform them pretty convincingly. So it wasn't until later in life, I didn't start having therapy until I was in my 30s, that I began to connect the dots. And as I did that, I began to understand um, the beautiful gift that my mom had given me by teaching me to play the piano. And it wasn't something that I could ever stop doing. It's been a blessing and a curse. I mean, when you're a kid, you just want to be outside playing, but you have to practice. So I began to realize I had a responsibility to make the very best music that I could when I needed to do that. And that takes time and effort. And I kept putting that time and effort in, still do. So when I began to get some psychological help and recognize what was going on with me, uh, my first therapist was a shock because he said, Bill, you're an angry man. I never thought of myself as being angry before. (laughs) And um, after years, I finally realized that, yeah, he was right. (laughs) And I'd been playing that anger at the piano for a long, long time. I began to make the connections and see how the emotional content of the music that I love to make uh, was related to my own emotional content, almost intertwined with it in a way that was, well, it was me. And it wasn't something that I needed to be ashamed of, that I carried around a lot of depression with me because that was fuel that helped, uh, helped me perform convincingly. There was also, of course, other aspects to that. All four of the primary emotions are part of making any creative art uh, really work. Fear, anger, sadness, and joy all go into it. And if you can honor those properly in whatever your craft is. So um, as I became more in touch with that musical, emotional connection, um, I wound up going back to school and I finished a, a music degree, just a bachelor's degree in the late 90s at UCI. And then things really started to uh, started to change. The therapist that I had subsequent to that was married to a Vietnam veteran. And she knew that I did this very interesting thing in a one-man show with the piano where I sort of talked about my life and how things fit together with the music, what it's like to make the music. And um, she heard me do that. She came to a show and, and afterwards said, Bill, you know what? You need to do this for Vietnam veterans. In fact, all veterans, because there's a lot of veterans with post-traumatic stress that don't get the emotional content of what they're going through. Mm. And I think, Bill, what you have might be useful. So... Um, The next thing that happened was someone from an Alzheimer's caregiver network reached out and said, could you do that performance for us? We caregivers need some help. And it it opened me up to this whole potential for music as self-care, as a healing tool. Now, there are music therapists, of course, who can sit down with you one-on-one. And I'm not a music therapist, but music therapists are licensed, board-certified, highly educated people who use music as modality for treatment. And that could be... um, helping Alzheimer's patients to feel uh, something more than the flatness of Alzheimer's. Um, It could be 
helping autistic kids like do drum circles together. It, there's so many ways that music as therapy is uh, engaged with our world in clinical environments and settings. It's a very beautiful thing. Not being a music therapist, just being a piano player. I took the approach that, first of all, the power of music is well known and science is catching up with research to give us um, sort of clinical evidence-based, we like to say evidence-based, evidence-based uses for music that musicians have known for a long time. But now we can say with certainty that they're scientifically validated. And that's really cool. And there's functional MRI of people improvising that lets the neuroscientist take a look at the brain and what it's doing in these amazing creative endeavors that artists and musicians take all the time. So um, music is this fascinating thing for science right now. But when it comes to me, I'm thinking, gosh, I've had this music going on at that time for almost 40 years in my life. And I had an experience in about 2007 that convinced me that music had also been saving my life. I'll get to that in a minute. Why can't I take this knowledge and, and show it to other people and not turn them into musicians, but to take the music they love and open it up to them in a way that is that provides them with self-care, but gives them a way to be able to intervene when things get bad or to um, get a competitive edge if that's what they need or find peace much more than just listening to it it becomes an active tool that you can use for physical emotional mental even spiritual self-care and that's been such a crazy journey um, so beautiful in so many ways because it got me volunteering for veterans and also for active duty i've become engaged with homeless people and and their sort of challenges. As we mentioned earlier, I got to watch the stigma of post-traumatic stress turn into the potential of post-traumatic growth. And that's a huge movement now in the United States and elsewhere. Unlocking my own trauma has been a part of that as well. And I got to spend several years with a trauma-informed therapist and all kinds of interesting modalities like EMDR and others, learning about how to get to the root of the trauma and unpack the gold that's there it's a marvelous experience to do this and to help people uh, understand they can do it too with nothing more than a good music player and the songs they love mm -hmm. so i mentioned this sort of the dark side and it's worth going through that the last time i felt um, really compelled to take my own life i was an empty nester um, my kids had gone to college the second divorce was final the second bankruptcy had been discharged I was just in this place where like, well, what's left? Instead of seeing it as an opportunity to move forward, my view on it at that time was, I've done everything I can do. This is it. There's just not no, no reason to continue to breathe. And um, I remember this very clearly because it was a Friday of Labor Day weekend, 2007. And um, I was really depressed. But I decided to take my own medicine and I put on a piece of music that had been with me for many years. And put the headphones on, sat in the chair. In fact, it's the same chair I'm talking to you from right now. Mm. And just let the music play. And um, began to weep. I must have wept for quite a while. Um, fell asleep eventually. Music's still playing over and over, cycling the same piece of piano music through my head.
And uh, when I woke up, I was completely wrung out. It was completely dark outside. Started probably in the late afternoon. I crawled into bed and, um, and slept. This is one of the most nonlinear experiences. And every time I relate it, it seems like it makes no sense at all. Mm-hmm. But what happened next um, was profound for me. So I'm not a songwriter. I'm not a composer. I've done some compositions and stuff like that. But when I woke up the next morning, there were words in my head, as there often are. And I started to uh, realize that they were in the form of lyrics. So I grabbed a piece of paper and pencil and started to write them down. It didn't take too long. There were a bunch of verses and a bridge. And uh, I realized that I had a song, but I had no music. And, and so I just kind of said out loud, well, where's the music for this? Well, by noon, I had the music too. <laughs> wow. And the, the song was complete. And of course, the, my next question, well, who's ever going to perform this? And the voice came back just as quick as I'm talking to you and said, well, Bill, you are. Mm-hmm. And I have. I've used the song a few times in public performance of my own show. And it's crazy that I do this because I don't sing. But I can get through it. And um, it, it is a transformative experience to play it because in the performance of it, I set it up by playing the very piano music that I listened to that night that kept me breathing mm. and follow it with the song that came the next day so that there's continuity, you know, for the experience in the audience as well. And, and, and that's how it happened. Mm-hmm. I still have to choose to keep breathing. And there are times where it's harder than not. But the value of continuing to breathe is something that I've learned in, you know, over all these years. I've learned that it's really, really important. You never know what the next day might bring. And I'm curious enough about that now to stay engaged on it. This isn't to say that I don't get depressed, because I do. But the willingness to go deep into those emotions, as deep as Beethoven went, right? Yeah. Um and and to find what's there. This is this is a practice that's supported by so much of the wis- wisdom literature. Of course, I'm probably reading selectively, but from Joe Campbell, remember the power of myth, mm-hmm. right up through to some of the modern poets who talk about the the willingness to dive deep into a well, even if you don't know that you can reach the bottom or hold your breath long enough, you're going to find the gold that's down there if you've got that willingness. There are uh, poems of Rumi talk about this. Um, you can read the same process in Shakespeare. I mean, it's all over the place. And, and once you become aware of it, it's like, wow, this is really a thing. Yeah. And music can really lead you there. I didn't have a piano. My grand piano was packed up somewhere that day in 2007. All I had was the keyboard. I couldn't feel the, the vibrations, but the listening and, and the intent I think was, I could have been listening to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. I think if with the right intent, Mm -hmm. any music would have saved me that night. And Mm -hmm. that intent was just, what what do you have for me? You know, I am open. This music is the only thing that I need right now. Show me what you have, you know. Unlock the things that need to be unlocked. And with that kind of intention, um, the magic about all this is that that's what music will do. Provided you bring your intention to it. Right. But that's remarkable. Like what you're saying about music and, you know, what a lot of this is alluding to and how big and meaningful and important it is and can be that at your moment of feeling like you had nothing else to do, 
in life, like not just that night, but in life that you had nothing left to give and no desire to give it. And that just hearing that, you know, kind of became that thing that, like you said, did clearly save you. And I attempted suicide when I was 21. Wow. And I don't, I think this is the first time I've talked about it on this podcast, actually, for no good reason, really. But now, if I have even an inkling of those thoughts, like my immediate dismissal is my kids. Yes. And so that is kind of that role. And to think of how important, obviously, that my kids are to me and that that one, like even that little creeping into the back of your mind thought of suicide or whatever or depression well those are two different completely even though intertwined and very good partners good good dancing partners yes well not good but they are adept at what they do um that when that comes in just the images thinking of my kids dispels it like that tiny bit of smoke that comes into a room and you just blow it out or whatever. It's gone so fast. And to think about the power of music in your life and, you know, probably for many other people that that um, completely chased that away is tremendous. I think you're onto something here, Tim, because all of these emotions have a spectrum of, um, well, in the case of depression, a spectrum of darkness, let's say, because you can be just a little sad or you can be chronically depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can be scared of not having enough money, so you save and you know, you'll always have reserves. Or you can be like terrified watching a scary movie and feel your skin crawl. There's 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 a degree of fear and a degree a degree of sadness, you know. And I think we're taught to stay away from the depths of a lot of those feelings. Because it's good for society, you know, it, it, it helps to preserve mm-hmm. the race if we don't all go kill ourselves. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but there's nothing yeah. really wrong with investigating those places, those those dark places we don't like to go, provided that you can do it in safety. And mm-hmm. um, oftentimes, uh, a big symphony concert or something will give us a huge range of emotion, which is all very safe. I mean, nothing's going to happen to you in symphony hall uh, except an encounter with your emotions. And well, I mean, other things could happen, but that's the purpose. Yeah. And, and at whatever level you grok that, that's fine. I happen just because of my life experience and my commitment to it. I happen to be someone who wants to go very deep into emotion and does that with purpose and intent and in much safety, because there are some that are pretty terrifying, you know, to, to experience. And some of them have adrenaline producing side effects like anger Mm-hmm. Anger and fear were designed to keep us safe, you know, protect the family. And you need to feel those things that deeply in order to activate yourself to a level where, uh, for example, uh, we all know the story of the woman who was able to lift a car off of her child. You know, right? Yeah, we can do remarkable things, but we need to tie into those emotional sort of power cells to get us up to the level where we can do that. And the emotions also function as guardrails that keep us from doing stupid things, too, you know. Hey, don't stick your mm-hmm. hand in the fire. Why? <laughs> well, I did that once. It hurt. Well, right? Let me tell you. He had yeah. this emotional response. So um, they're, they're good guardrails, too. They're actually um, 
I think when it comes down to it, the, the scientists who are working on such things will discover that emotions are our gateway to the consciousness that we all want to know about, find a biological marker for. I think we're going to get there through emotion rather than any other way. And that science will discover that long after all of us who have been doing it, <laughs> you know, have made mm -hmm. it obvious <laughs> to the rest of the world. Yeah. So um, however, <laughs> however deep you go into emotion, I read this most amazing study came out. I think the BBC published it. And um, I'd kind of been expecting that something like this would happen. But they studied uh, metal music. And they pointed out that when you're listening to metal, as someone who's an aficionado, you feel joy, elation. It's not about all this deadness and, you know, zombie land, death and destruction. It's actually music that creates this immense emotion, right? Right. The opposite one from what you might have thought. I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? But that's me. And, you know, I'm not your average bear, but I'm, I'm also not a scientist. But the, the thing that is so cool about that is those intense kinds of music, like the genres that we think of as the most difficult perhaps to listen to have such a incredible reward for the people who listen to them. Right. Mm -hmm. That's, and that's art and music. Like that's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. That's that crazy thing about the eye of the beholder to arts, whatever they may be that they are making an emotional response. You know, it's the singer songwriter that has their stuff on YouTube or whatever that has their little handful of people, whatever that number may be, that are absolutely blown yes. away by them and love what they do and whatever. And to other people, they may be eh, heard that before or whatever, but that is that is music, just like you're saying. Let's let's bring it back to when you started doing the the music care work and um, what all that kind of entails. And I think that that will kind of bring a lot of this full circle. Sure. So what I call music care is actually a practice. As a musician, you learn how to do things over and over until they become natural and you don't have to think about doing them. They just happen by themselves. And that frees you to get to the meaning of them. Um, so music care is the practice of doing that with music that you love, uh, most of the time it's a listening practice so that you can recognize the meaning that that music has for you in your individual space. Now, that meaning could be something like trying to wind down after a busy day. There's meaning in that. It could be um, meaning as deep as what I had to find when I was taking this voyage through suicide. Um, it could be simply the meaning of you know, putting on your jogging shoes and taking your soundtrack with you out on a decent run somewhere. But that intentional meaning is where the magic is. So what practices uh, can all of us develop to bring that meaning into connection with our issues in life, whatever those might be? That's what music care is all about. It's not something that I think is written down anywhere yet. Uh, other than the writing that I've done on it, I haven't found any. Uh, in the United States particularly, we're in this sort of dyad relationship where there's something that we need to fix. We find somebody who can fix it for us. Whether that's our cars or internal organs, we tend to look for experts who can solve the problem for us. That's a decent ethos, but 
it's interesting to me that as independent and self-aware as Americans are, uh, we haven't taken our entrepreneurial spirit into our own care. We still, as in spite of ourselves, go search for a doctor to fix us or a therapist to help us figure it out or an expert to do our books for us, you know, whatever it is. So this idea of being able to care for ourselves, very entrepreneurial idea, and doing it with music, um, we're just now writing the books on that. I think you could probably do it with art. I'm I'm not completely stuck on having to be the only way forward. It's really interesting to me that there are so many available self-care tools out there that really work well. And so few people who are actually embracing them. Uh, we can look at that with yoga over the last maybe 30 years. It's gone from this sort of hippie practice to a mainstream practice. And it's really helping a lot of people say the same thing for meditation. I often think um, that performing music well is actually a meditative state. It's not about you making the music. It's about you allowing the music to happen and with no other focus than enjoying the results. And I think that might be what meditators are after. I don't know. I've tried meditation. It doesn't work as well as music does for me. So making all of these interesting connections about what we can do with the modality of music to unlock our sense of self-awareness, our unlock our ability to think clearly, uh, to remember things. Obviously, you can use music to remember stuff much. You can learn things and remember them longer if you set them to music. There's so many little ways in on this that all are a part of how music can help us. And we've been discussing, of course, the wonderful ways that music can open up feelings, often difficult ones, to help us recognize that, yeah, even though they're difficult, there's still something beautiful contained there for all of us to find and to excavate that in a way that's healthful rather than hurtful and doesn't require some harmful expression, but can be a very beautiful emotional journey. You know, I'm mm -hmm. grateful that I've had supportive therapists along the way. Uh, National Council on Behavioral Health recognized me for this kind of work. That was very gratifying. But the real beauty of it is watching it in action. When I was volunteering with Guitars for Vets, which is an amazing nonprofit, volunteers teach veterans to play the guitar, and after 10 lessons, you get a free guitar. But when you are sitting with a veteran who's unpacking them, their trauma through music, the most amazing things happen. And there's nothing like the feeling of watching those things take place in real time, right there in front of you, uh, to see the transformation take place. You, you can't get that in any other way. And that process, just watching a veteran play the guitar and observing the changes that happen, if that isn't self-care using music, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine the, like you were saying earlier, the feeling that is not able to be replicated by doing, serving, and helping others, and what that is like with the people that you are doing it with, whether it is the veterans, whether it is the work with the homeless, all these people that have so much inside of them emotionally and what music, the, <laughs> the significance and importance of music and bringing those two things together into this world for these people. I, I just, I can imagine how incredible each one of those days of doing that can be for you. 
I, I imagine in some ways, Tim, it's like you with your daughter when you watch her mm-hmm. and when the, when she makes connections and comes alive and you just watch that development happen. Um, it must be similar to that. Mm-hmm. The, the cool thing about people who are quote at risk is that they're closer to the, the win than many of the rest of us. So that's a, a paradoxical statement, but someone who is willing to take a close look at, for example, suicide, my own suicide, is someone who is much closer to the answer than someone who won't think about suicide at all, even though it kind of bothers them. Mm-hmm. So working with homeless and stressed out veterans, um, they're ready to make a change. That's, that's you know, it's, it's time for something new. They've been doing it the hard way for so long. They're ready for something new. But they're the ones who get labeled at risk. I think the most at-risk people are the ones who are the most unaware, who are just droning away in their jobs and don't realize mm-hmm. the, you know, the power of what's available to them that, that they're not able to access or don't want to for any reason. That's that's where the real work remains. Yeah, that's extremely poignant because I'm just thinking of people that I know in both of those categories, and yeah, saying using those specific words at risk for so many people who are not only kind of not aware, but potentially not a self-aware and b bottling, working so hard to bottle things up, you know, kind of like what you were saying about, well, maybe not in the same way that you guys were doing it, but talking about uh, the men in your family and the lack of emotion being shown, etc. Like I got it. Yeah. The amount of people that do that and the tireless exhaustion that many times they are not realizing until they are self-aware or for any of you 19 to 24 year olds who are listening to this podcast I will use the word woke and you can all laugh at me for using that word, but, um, but truly like once that realization is there, you know, for me, when, after I attempted suicide, so I attempted, I was in a coma for nearly three full days and went to a state facility for the 48 hour lockdown um, observation, etc., And then I was in a, another facility that was kind of, it was a, um, kind of a home atmosphere, um, sort of. And I was there for over a month and with other people who were at all different extremes. And some of that was again, kind of that humbling thing of, wow, I I do not belong here because of the fact that some of these stories that people are telling of what they have been through and, you know, uh, girls who are in their mid twenties and have been, um, abused and raped by their uncles or, uh, family members for decades And me just thinking like, wow, my hurt is so minimal compared to yours. But all of the realizations that I came to during that time and all of the things that I learned about 
humans and what are how different we all are with our thresholds and what is a 10 to this person maybe is something that is so extreme like that and attend to another person that is more sensitive may not be as extreme, but they are both at their 10 and, um, learning those things of self care. Oh, perfect. Um, of self care. And, you know, one of the biggest things that I took away that I've probably said the most to other people in the course of my lifetime since then is the thing of how, they tell you on a plane when they are giving you the spiel that you're most likely not listening to about how you need to put the oxygen mask on the person that you are with that is a kid or whatever that is unable to handle that themselves um, after you have already put on your own. And the line between selfishness and self-care can be so blurred by so many people and so many people don't take care of themselves because of that idea that they are being selfish if they do that. And yeah, the, how much I was able to get woke by that experience and learn all of these things. And just like what you're talking about, like all of those things that these people are on the brink of and are ready for is really cool it is you can see it leaking out in um like in the bad way but you can also see it leaking out in the good way um the bad Mm -hmm. way the way that they're tying all these uh recent white supremacy mass shootings Mm -hmm. uh, together to angry white men um that's that's a not so great way that it's leaking out some of the great ways that it's leaking out are things that you wouldn't even think of just quiet little things that happen. You have to observe them carefully. But remember the random acts of kindness movement? Mm-hmm. So if yeah. you spend any amount of time in a busy urban area, and I live near San Diego, so we've lived downtown and I'm a little bit out of town now, but we spend a lot of time downtown. And we quickly learned that if you had leftovers from, a, from going out to dinner, to uh, save them because there's going to be a homeless person between where you'd gone to dinner and on your walk home that will have a meal that they wouldn't otherwise have. Mm -hmm. And uh, we weren't the originators of that. We learned it from other people. There's a whole unsung movement of just quiet heroes doing good things and for no other reason than they're the right things to do. Mm -hmm. And if you unlock that a little bit, it goes... I mean, Me Too might be part of that, but it's not those big popular things where you see people you know, grabbing the mic and, and talking about it in a bigger way. They're just little things that take place regularly and amazingly by people that you would never even have guessed doing good things. Sometimes it leaks out in ways where there's an intervention that prevents loss of life or a kid doing something stupid by a total stranger or whatever. And uh, you know, it's hard these days because we're sort of not to interfere with stuff but you can see this happening lots of youtube videos of a bus driver that sees something beside the road and stops the bus and it turns out to be a a, an animal that someone's dropped off and it gets rescued and cared for i mean these kinds of things Mm -hmm. are out there and all you have to do is become aware of them and all of a sudden you realize that yeah we're getting squeezed really hard and yeah some of it is coming out in very ugly ways but 
on the other hand, some of it is coming out in really beautiful ways that thanks to YouTube and other others, we can see evidence of, you know? Yeah. And that's very heartening when you're in the middle of doing work with at risk people, whether they're called at risk or not. Totally. Yeah. And, and those little things that add up and that, you know, I was going to say this earlier and fortunately we came back around to it. The thing of that moment, that night in 2007 for you and to think now 12 years later, well, 11 and some change years later of how much you have done since then, how many people's lives you have affected ones that you know about and ones that you don't, you know, one person that is hearing you play and you are hitting their insidey places in the right way. And they are walking away from that performance and their life is taking some kind of a change that you will never hear about ever. And all of those things I've started to talk about this more recently are those things that can be that tiny little thing that can change somebody's life and their day and their mood. And then that extends out to however many people that they potentially are changing. And it is kind of that pay it forward sort of idea, but um, all those tendrils that reach out from one person and their small or large actions. And so like you said earlier, I'm also very excited and happy that you are still choosing to breathe and that you did make that choice. And yeah, yeah. God bless Rachmaninoff. Seriously. For that piece of music. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that you have done all of the work that you have done and continue to do. I know it's really changed a lot of people's lives and I definitely feel just from this less than two hours of talking with you very inspired I'm so glad Tim thank you very kind it's very humbling to think about it that way I don't often let myself do that because you know counting noses or whatever tends to get you into a less than ideal place (laughs) Mm -hmm. the the very difficult part of this is that in our world the acceptance of these ideas is is difficult. So I'm being careful right now to develop a strong uh, front line of people who also understand and can use this work and and deploy it in their realms, whatever they might be. Uh, they don't have to necessarily be coaches or musicians or anything like that, but parents are a great one. It's odd, but over the last few weeks, I've had a number of guest appearances on podcasts that are for attorneys, mm. attorneys of all people. Well, there's a stressed out profession. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that the work sort of has a life of its own and goes in the direction it wants to go. And I more or less follow it, hopefully with a full card of things that I can share at the time. So I really appreciate your, uh, your kind comments about it. And I really hope that for anyone who's interested, there's uh, a way that you can engage more deeply with the music you love and make it more a part of your care, you know, Rather than just being a soundtrack, it can actually come in and, and activate those parts of you that need to be activated. Yeah. Well, um, I really appreciate, I'm a very up conversation that has really moved me definitely. And I really appreciate you taking the time 
today to go through all of this. And I know we didn't talk a lot about you being a dad. I apologize. I definitely wanted to hit on all of those things that I thought would be extremely important and inspiring to others. So thank you. No worries at all. And you're very welcome. And congratulations to you two for telling your suicide story live on the air for the first time. Yeah. People yeah. need to hear that. And the more of us that tell those stories, the less uh, frightening a suicide becomes and the more we can join together around solutions for it, you know? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I I have actually put some stuff out. It's It was actually really kind of cool when I saw, when I was doing my cramming on you today. That sounds really weird to say that. <laughs> um, I understand. When I was researching you today, maybe is better, um, that I saw your experience with that because I had put out on Twitter like a while ago trying to reach out and find other dads that have had that experience so that we could start really trying to broach that on this podcast. And I am 100% behind that whole in a hashtag, the bell let's talk issue, because I could not agree with that more that the talking about all of those things is huge. Necessary. Yeah. Yeah. I actually run a group for people who are thinking about suicide. It's a meetup group and uh, it it's kind of, it's ironic because if there's nobody there, that means we're doing our job. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it's a great topic and um, not nearly as scary as it sounds. Yeah. Well, um, you all should absolutely find Bill on, you can find him on the web and we'll put all of the websites on the show notes, but you can go to, you can start with either billprotzman.com or musiccare.net and start there and find all of the things that Bill is involved in. And like he said, I know this won't be tough for some of you, but make sure you are still trying to take care of yourselves. Make sure that you are using music in the way that I know for a lot of you, you know that it kind of reaches you in that way and you maybe aren't thinking of it directly in the way that we're talking about it but it is for a lot of you extremely helpful and important in your day-to-day so don't strip yourself of that even though i'm making a podcast that takes up some of your potential music listening time make sure that before you listen to another episode of daddy unscripted that you throw some music in there sweet all right cool well thanks a lot bill you're welcome tim thank you There you have it. That is my conversation with Bill Protzman. We really we really could have gone on so much longer. And like I said at the end there, I did feel kind of bad that I didn't go into more of the stuff about him being a dad and all of that. And like we kind of just brushed past the fact that he's uh, been married more than once and all of these things that were in there. But I really wanted to tackle the whole thing with the music care and make sure that we got a good discussion in about that and that we also got into the darkness and how we both made our way out of that 
and some of the lessons that we learned from that as well. So I hope you guys really enjoyed that. I hope that you came away with something from it. I hope that any of you or some of you that either explore those dark spaces sometimes or at least feel them enough to know they're there and have to work sometimes to push them off. I hope that that encourages you. I hope that it encourages you that you can absolutely make it through that. I hope that it encourages you to talk about it to other people. And I hope that it encourages you to know what some of your ammunition against it might be at different times, whether that is, like I was saying now, my family, my kids, and that is the baseline that I need. And right now, that's all I need. And for Bill, at that time, it was music. And I hope that you guys, I know that we all have those things that drive us, that sometimes maybe we take for granted or whatever that may be. But I just want to encourage all of you because you matter. You matter to more than just someone. I really feel like I'm not being ignorant and stupid by saying that everyone here on earth matters to someone. And I mean, unless you are the deepest, darkest, most evil person on the planet and who knows what you are going to do. This is the thing that I talk to the most with young people that I've talked to that reach into those dark spaces and feel like they are at rock bottom and feel like they have nothing to give or nowhere to go or nothing to live for or whatever. You just, you never know what lies ahead of you and the effect that you are going to have on other people's lives And in my case, the lives that you are going to create and what those lives are going to potentially do. So do you feel that? Like, I hope you guys feel some of that, some of that love and energy I'm trying to give out to you and the hugs and all of that. So again, like we said in there, and I know it sometimes feels so easy to just hashtag bell, let's talk stuff. But truly, 100%, if any of you ever need to talk to me, or talk to somebody, I should say, you can absolutely reach out to me with that. I will be honored to be that person for somebody. And even if it's not to cure what ails you, if it is just to listen and be that person for you to talk to, I don't... I don't need to fix everything and I know I can't fix everything. So I just wanted to throw that out there for you guys. So again, I hope that you enjoyed this beautiful and astounding conversation with Bill. Um, I will have all of the websites and everything in the show notes. So make sure you check those out or again, the website daddyunscripted.com and look at all of the writing about this episode. So thanks again, you guys. You can find me on social media. I got to say all this stuff really quick. You can find me on social media at Daddy Unscripted on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. The email is daddyunscripted at gmail.com. The website is daddyunscripted.com. Big thanks to Bill 
obviously, Bill, thank you so much for your time and to your family for allowing you to take that time with me. That little snippet of music that was in the middle of Bill's story of that fateful night in 2007 was actually him now playing that song. I asked him afterwards if he could play that on piano and we could put that in to kind of enrich that story a little bit. So thank you, Bill, for doing that. Thank you to Umphreys McGee for their music in this episode and every episode. Check them out, umphreys.com. Their summer tour is going to be huge this year. They're playing a lot of festivals, so see if you can check them out for their incredible musicianship. And again, thanks to Osiris Podcast Network for embracing daddy unscripted and make sure you guys check out some of those other podcasts on osiris podcast network osirispod.com plenty of osiris podcasts for you guys to check out and hear music hear about music hear from musicians and the things that inspire them and why they love what they do so check out any of those podcasts and my next episode will be out in a couple weeks from now. So make sure you guys check that out. Oh, I got to say goodbye to you now in Afrikaan, which, which is have a nice day in Afrikaan. Have a nice day, everybody. And give a little bit of love to somebody today. And I know the whole random act of kindness, like that phrase maybe makes a little bit, uh, some of you kind of cringe a little because you've heard it so much, but do something nice for somebody today just randomly you know but it's so easy to do something nice and kind for another human and not just for the people that we love and the people that we care about but somebody else so let's all do something every day this week whatever week it is let's do something nice for somebody else shall we can you guys agree to do that right i see all of you raising your hands and nodding your heads i love it so Keep an eye out for the next episode. Thanks, you guys. Mm-hmm.